0: I'm Scott, I'm Bill, and And we're we're the the Trade Trade Guys. Guys.
1: You're listening to the Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS, where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys.
2: I'm Rebecca Bellinger. I'm the Executive Director of the Center.
0: And I'm Kisla
3: Prasad, Academic Director of the Center and a faculty member here at the Smith School.
2: And we, serving as your moderators this evening, are excited to be here again with you and with our friends from the Center for Strategic and International Studies, Bill Breisch and Scott Miller, perhaps better known as the Trade Guys, to talk about all things trade. We'll start this evening by asking questions of the trade guys about what's happening in trade today. And then we'll take as many questions as we can directly from the audience via the Q&A function. Bill and Scott, welcome back to the center. It's wonderful to have you with us, even if we're not all together this evening in Van Munching Hall.
1: It's a great pleasure to be here. Thanks for having us back. It's a pleasure to be here. And
0: I was in Van Munchen Hall two weeks ago because I occasionally lecture and I'm looking forward to coming back. I think the next time will be in October.
2: I, I hope to uh, see you then in person and don't forget to bring your mask.
3: Now, let me add my welcome to Rebecca's. So welcome to the Smith School. Uh, so to get started, uh, what in your opinion are the pressing trade topics of the day?
1: Well, our usual approach here is that Bill will start uh, to talk about the Biden trade policies, and I'll talk about what we're going to do about that. So (laughs) go ahead, Bill.
0: I think the big two are are the Biden administration and and China, and I think we'll probably get to China uh, a little bit later, so I won't won't get to that in the beginning. What the White House has articulated about their trade policy is to begin with that uh, it's not a priority. They said that in the campaign, and they've kept their word. It's not a priority, uh, and they haven't done very much. Uh, When you ask them what the policy is, it's uh, we want a trade policy that helps workers. We want a trade policy for the middle class. I think we're going to spend four years trying to figure out what that means. Um, We, the trade guys, think we know what it means, uh, and what we think it means is uh, no no new agreements anytime soon, uh, no current agreements anytime soon, meaning the ones that are underway like the UK and Kenya. They're going to focus on domestic policy. Uh, they don't seem very interested in conventional market access issues. <coughs> I think one of the, the reasons why is because they've – and I think this is a mistake, I'll be honest with you – but they, they conflate creation of benefit with distribution of benefits. I think most people would say that what trade trade agreements do – is create benefits. They create more trade, more jobs, more growth. Uh, They don't have a lot to say uh, about how you distribute the benefits. I mean, the trade agreement distributes the benefits between the parties to the agreement, you know, what we get and what the other party gets or other parties get. But uh, who inside the United States benefits, uh, I think, is really more a question for domestic tax policy, education policy, adjustment policy. and, and you know, other elements of what the government can do, regulatory policy. But um, the, the Biden people seem focused on how do we make sure that the benefits flow to workers. Um, people have tried to point out to them that if they're not negotiating anything, uh, there aren't going to be any new benefits. Uh, so who you're going to give them to is kind of moot, but they don't seem to have connected the, the dots on, on that point. They talk almost entirely about labor and environment, Uh, If you talk to the left wing of the party, that's really all they're interested in. Uh, I think labor has three components, and in the trade area, environment has two. And I'll do that and then I'll stop talking. Uh, Labor, I think they're focused primarily on enforcement, enforcement, enforcement. Uh, The obvious place is Mexico, because we have a good enforcement arrangement there, thanks to what was negotiated in the last administration. And Ambassador Ty was part of that because she was on the Ways and Means Committee staff at the time. So she's proud of it. Uh, the Democrats are proud of it because it was a Nancy Pelosi thing. Um, and the Republicans uh, were proud of it because it was a Trump and Ambassador Lighthizer thing. So there was a lot of support for it. And now they're trying to make it work. And I think, frankly, they're doing a pretty good job of, of, uh, on the labor side of making it work but I think it's probably at the expense of other things. Uh, The second labor element is uh, distribution of benefits. And I already talked about that. And I think that is going to sort of be left to other policy elements. And the third one is uh, promoting domestic employment, which for the Biden folks means reshoring. Let's bring jobs back to the United States. Uh, And that means uh, tighter rules of origin uh, it means uh, tighter rules, by American rules for government procurement. Uh, and in the end, I think what it will mean is uh, let's have, uh, if you look at his campaign documents, let's have carrots and sticks for companies to get them to go where we want. Let's carrots for companies that come back here, sticks for companies that don't. Uh, not everybody. I think companies that have gone overseas to serve overseas markets are not in the target zone. Uh, I think they're going to be focused on companies that have built foreign uh, parts and components into their supply chain and ship them back here uh, for assembly and then maybe re-export or domestic consumption. I think the administration would like to see more of those come back here. Um, parenthetically, I'd say that probably they probably won't succeed uh, uh, very much in that. I think to the extent you see movement um, in that area and and supply chain adjustment, and you will, I think Scott will probably talk about that. It'll be out of China, but it'll be into Vietnam, Malaysia, uh, Mexico, maybe, uh, and other places. Uh, A lot of it won't be back here. Uh, But I think right now that's their policy. If you ask them about any specific thing, the answer is always the same, it's under review. And everything has been under review for now nine months. Uh, and I think some of it, uh, including China, when we get there, is going
1: to continue to be under review for a while. So, Scott, over to you. Yeah, no, I, I would agree with that. And on a practical level, uh, negotiating authority has expired. Uh, the what we call t- trade promotion authority uh, expired earlier this year, and there is no effort either from the administration or the Congress to renew it. The uh, the uh, Committees in the House are concerned about trade adjustment assistance, which is a good thing to be concerned about and a good, a good program overall, but it's ordinarily coupled with advances in negotiating authority, which the subject's not come up. Uh, in addition, uh, even the, the though many Democrats and many people heavily criticize the Trump administration's tariff policies, We're not unwinding any of those tariffs. The Section 301 tariffs on China, the Section 232 tariffs on steel and aluminum are all still in place. And, you know, unpacking those, at least in the mind of the administration, would take some give and take, which is not happening. Um, Likewise, uh, a reshoring or uh, deeper Buy America programs would also uh, at some point require negotiation. We are a signatory to the Government Procurement Act at uh, the WTO. So, so the, the government procurement agreement, excuse me, would would have have to be changed and we'd have to get our, our trading partners agreement to do that. The, the fix we're in, uh, it's sort of a continuation of what I'd characterize as suspended animation in trade policy. <clears throat> the old issues are still the old issues and just as stuck as ever, like farm subsidies. The new issues seem to be somewhat incoherent, uh, like digital trade. And we're not making a lot of progress. <clears throat> we'll point out that peak trade in terms of trade as a share of, of world output occurred in 2007. We are we are below that level today. And 2007, I don't know how many in our, where people were in our, among our audience in 2007, but uh, it seems a long way, a long time ago, but that was, that's that's where we stand. So.
3: Well, a quick quick follow up. Uh, one of the things that President Trump would flirt with was the idea of uh, a free trade agreement with the United Kingdom. Is that on the um, on the radar anywhere or uh, or no
1: Yeah, the negotiations were launched they 're still ongoing there, no, but there 's no way to conclude them uh, and bring them before the Congress in an expedited manner because negotiating authority has lapsed. Uh, there, are, there are a couple options out there with the UK. Uh, one of them is that the negotiators of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which became CPTPP, the uh, non-memorable and unpronounceable acronym, but the basically Japan, Australia, New Zealand, uh, and the, the other 11 parties to the Trans-Pacific, left room for the UK to join, and the UK has applied to join. So there's another way to deal with sort of Indo-Pacific region and deal with a preferential agreement with the U.K. were we to reconsider uh, trade in Asia-Pacific in some form. Uh, so the the U.K. is actually fairly ambitious about its longtime role as an open uh, free-trading nation, and they're, they're going after uh, agreements with with some vigor, uh, but we're not, we're not making progress uh, at the moment with them in either a bilateral or plurilateral setting.
0: It took me a long time to understand why we weren't going ahead with the trade agreement with a close friend and ally where we have a lot in common and uh, finally it dawned on me, because somebody told me, that uh, for this administration it has I think more to do with Ireland than anything else, um, the president is Irish. Uh, uh, Senator Schumer and Speaker Pelosi think they're Irish, and uh, they all are committed to uh, a the, the Good Friday Agreement that's maintained uh, more or less peace in Ireland <coughs> since it was uh, since its inception. Uh, and they're very concerned that the one of the consequences of Brexit. Uh, in trying to settle the Northern Ireland border question, because it's the only land border, aside from Gibraltar, it's the only land border between EU and non-EU members now, that, uh, that trying to, to resolve that and deal with it may end up um, uh, compromising the Good Friday Agreement. And I think the administration, the U.S. administration's disposition is probably not to move forward very fast with the U.K. until that is worked out. And it's not worked out. Uh, It keeps getting, uh, the temporary resolution keeps getting extended, but uh, they're not making a lot of progress trying to uh, solve the problem that that creates. And I wouldn't expect a lot of US-UK action until that situation is stabilized.
3: So uh, should we turn now to China policy, I guess? I mean, is there uh, a grand China policy uh, with this administration? and if so, what is, what is it? Uh,
0: it's uh, I think in the short run, it's, um, you know, don't do anything. Uh, you have to begin with, uh, uh, once again, with domestic politics, which always is a factor in these things. And I feel a little sorry for the president. He has very little room to maneuver on China. <laughs> there are four or five, depending on what week it is, Republican senators... <laughs> already running for president in 2024. I mean, they have to push Trump off the stage, which is a different problem and not anything that I think we can talk about. But they're competing amongst themselves as well. They all have the same campaign platform on this issue. And that is that Democrats in general, and Biden in particular, are soft on China and are compromising our national security and basically giving away the store to the Chinese. And uh, the Democrats actually uh, being well aware of the enormous drop in public support, uh, public sympathy for China, uh, have adopted uh, a similar approach. If you listen to Senator Schumer, uh, he sounds very much like the Republican candidates for president, except he doesn't criticize Biden. He just criticizes China. But if you look at poll data, you know, in, in, uh, 10 years ago, public opinion about China in, in the United States was 53 percent favorable. This year, it's 73 percent unfavorable. Uh, that's a remarkable change uh, in a relatively short period, uh, most of it in the last three or four years, uh, and most of it, I think, due to what to Chinese actions, not to to Trump in particular. But here we have uh, uh, a country that's unpopular with the American people. You've got both political parties trying to capitalize on that, and Biden in a situation of, of um, not being able to do very much <coughs> without exposing himself to criticism. So the obvious question is, what's going to happen to the tariffs? Uh, and my view is probably nothing in the short run. I mean, the, the fundamental principle of, of trade negotiations is there's no free lunch. Uh, he's not going to let them go away for nothing. Uh, he'll only let them go away if he can get some, something that he can characterize as Chinese concessions that he can wave around. Uh, and that would require a negotiation. Uh, and I don't think either side wants to do that right now. Uh, for, the Chinese, oh, yeah, that's- for the Chinese, it's, uh, you know, why do we want to listen to the Biden people come in and, and demand the same thing that Trump demanded? An end to subsidies, you know, an end to forced technology transfer, an end to all the things that we wanted to keep on doing and that we wouldn't agree with Trump on. Why do we want to spend time doing that? And for Biden, it's why do I want to engage in a negotiation that's going to fail? No matter what I bring back, it won't be good enough for the Republicans. So anything he brings back will be inadequate. It will be giving away our national security. The safe thing to do uh, for that right now is nothing. And my take on this, this announcement or this rumor that they're going to initiate another 301 investigation, uh, and Scott may disagree with me on this. We haven't talked about it. But my take on it is that basically that kicks the can. You know, uh, 301 investigations take a year or up to a year, it allows them to say, we are actively looking at this problem uh, and implicitly say, we're not going to do anything about it uh, until the investigation is over and we've bought some time. So I think the next action-forcing event, well, there are two. If Biden and Xi Jinping actually have a meeting at the end of October, if if she goes to the G20, that may produce something. Uh, more likely, uh, the next action-forcing event is when phase one expires, which is next Valentine's Day, I believe, uh, and the administration will have to say something at that point. But right now, I'm not looking for anything of significance. Aside from restarting the, the one-by-one tariff exclusion process, so companies come in and can apply to get off the hook, I think they'll start that again. Scott?
1: Well, look, I agree uh, with Bill that this is uh, there's not much room for negotiation. Partly, neither party sees a benefit in it. Uh, I think China's views of the United States have hardened. They're 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 much more confident with basically a China first policy. Uh, they do not want to combine issues. Uh, I think uh, uh, John Kerry, the who's, uh, I'm not sure what what uh, Secretary Kerry's title is these days, but he's the climate envoy. Got very rude treatment, uh, and uh, there's a pressure against linking anything with with exchange, but it's clearly a China-first policy uh, from the Chinese side, and they see no reason to, to do anything different. In the meantime, Bill's absolutely right about U.S. public opinion, which has moved from suspicion to uh, ch- to uh, belief that China's an unfair treater, traitor to belief China's a menace, which is sort of where opinion is now. So I think uh, I am usually c- can't be quite as cynical as Bill, but in, the, in this case, I agree. The 301 is, is basically uh, a way to uh, avoid talking about anything but the investigation uh, that it would be ongoing uh, for about a year.
0: I see there's a question in the Q&A that maybe we can deal with now, which was, has China been meeting its commitments uh, under phase one? And uh, my answer is yes and no. If you talk to the US business community about the non-purchase commitments, the areas where they agreed to adopt internationally accepted standards and stop doing some things that we asked them to stop doing. The business community tells me that with a couple conspicuous exceptions, uh, the two most conspicuous is the credit card issue and the polysilicon issue, that aside from them, by and large, the Chinese have done what they said they would do. Um, On the purchase commitments, uh, they are behind. Um, in some areas, like energy purchases, they are so far behind that it's probably impossible for them to catch up. Um, in other areas, it's a closer call. Uh, agriculture, I think the, they were at I don't know, something like 60% of what they had promised. Um, and it's, it's really too soon to tell because in, in agri- if you look at agriculture, uh, the agricultural relationship, most of their purchases historically are in the fourth quarter. Uh, so we are just now heading into the time when we can expect large purchases. I don't know that they'll get to 100 uh, percent, but they'll get closer to it than they are today. Uh, so in some areas, they're, uh, they're not going to make it. Uh, in some areas, I think they'll come close.
2: So I wanted to stick um, with China here for a little bit more. There, there's a question in the Q&A that, that gets to the, what you know, my point of view is, is is China actually a threat So if we go back to some of the legislation that um, both the Senate and the House passed over the summer aimed at competing, bringing the U.S. closer to competing with China on tech, on research, on telecom, semiconductor um, production, etc. And if you look inside that legislation, some of the finer points include things like blocking TikTok from US government devices and allowing Taiwanese military and diplomatic officials to wear their uniforms on US solar in in official capacities. Do those finer points of that legislation, are we with those finer points, are we just poking and prodding China here or is there a real threat that we're trying to address?
0: There's a real threat. Uh, Those particular things don't have anything to do with it. I'd say, including on on TikTok, I mean, you have to. uh, With TikTok, you can invent a threat. Um, and, and people have. The, the, the threats are that uh, the, the, the data that TikTok amasses if it falls into the hands of the Chinese government, which TikTok says it does not, uh, we can debate that, um, might be used for some unstated nefarious purposes. Um, and the other argument is that... Uh, that uh, it might become ultimately a propaganda machine for Chinese disinformation to affect, infect the people that watch or listen to TikTok, which means young people. Um, I think those are not the biggest security challenges we have. Um, you know, The biggest security challenges we have are Chinese uh, theft of critical technology that they can use to uh, enhance their military capabilities. And that's a serious problem. Uh, and one of the things that has happened over the last four or five years, it's not just Trump, but preceding Trump, is the, the, the national security element of the Chinese-U.S. Rela- trade relationship has gotten much larger. Uh, and we've attempted to deal with it through export controls and uh, controls on inbound investment. But I think it's
1: a serious issue. Yes, it's likely to continue to be one. I think we're past the stage. Uh, our friend uh, uh, Joyce Chang of uh, J.P. Morgan. Uh, used to call it coopetition. There were things we cooperated with China on. There were areas where we were we were competitors with China. We're sort of a frenemies relationship. I think we're moving beyond that into into rivals, and and uh, I don't know if it leads to conflict or not, but it leads to more tension in the relationship, and uh, certainly at the at the technological frontier, uh, IP theft of of the our our best technology is a huge concern, and something that I think there's a there's, there's a good reason to be concerned.
3: So I'll, I'll move us on to climate. Uh, so the storms and fires this summer have reminded us again of the urgency of uh, climate problem and the need to do something uh, about climate change. But what are the ways in which uh, the climate and the trade agendas intersect? And, and maybe should they intersect? Uh, and if so, how?
0: I think there are two, uh, subsidies and border adjustment measures. On subsidies, the issue is is getting rid of quote unquote bad subsidies, which would mean fossil fuel subsidies. and uh, on the other side, it would be creating or enhancing good subsidies, which would be green uh, tech subsidies. Uh, the administration has proposed uh, both uh, and uh, most of what the administration has proposed in general on climate can best be characterized as carrots, not sticks. They're very big on incentives, particularly for new technologies and green technologies, some of which would be characterized as subsidies, some of which would not. Um, the latest uh, development, which was yesterday, was it appears that the House Ways and Means Committee is not going to go along with proposals to eliminate fossil fuel subsidies uh, or even to reduce them. So um, the stick part of the administration's agenda is, is not going to be, uh, well, will, at least as of yesterday, may not be advanced. I mean, Congress is always happier voting carrots than they are voting sticks, uh, and that seems to be manifest this time around. So <clears throat> getting rid of subsidies doesn't really raise WTO issues. They're always happy if you get rid of subsidies. Uh, creating new ones might raise those issues. It depends on... <coughs> depends on how you do it, uh, and it depends on um, – well, at first, it depends on how you do it. If you link it to exports, then you have a real problem because those subsidies are prohibited. Um, if you don't link it to exports, and most of these are not linked to exports – probably all of them are not linked to exports – it really would be a question of whether they're injurious or not, whether they harm anybody else, um, and that would get litigated down the road. Um, the other issue is more complicated, which are border adjustment measures – and I think um, we're not there yet in public opinion. Uh, the Europeans are moving forward. Uh, they've made a proposal. Uh, for those of you that, that are not in the weeds on this, border adjustment measures means essentially taxing imports uh, based on their carbon content or based on the amount of carbon used in their production. You, there's different ways to do it. Uh, in order to uh, deal with what what is known as the carbon leakage problem, which would be countries that have high standards uh, being put in a position to having to accept imports of high carbon products from countries that have low standards. Uh, And the countries with high standards, their producers have been disadvantaged because they have to meet all these higher standards, which is expensive. Uh, And that tempts them uh, to move overseas to, you know, countries with low standards. And uh, this uh, CBAMs, which is Carbon Border Adjustment Measures, are designed to offset that. The EU is moving ahead. Uh, at at CSIS, we've been having a lot of discussions about this. We've undertaken a process where we try to get, the, basically, the environmental nerds and the trade wonks together to talk about it, and w- the main thing we've discovered is they don't speak the same language, uh, which makes communication kind of hard. But <laughs> Uh, there's sort of two scenarios here, and I don't know what the right answer is. Uh, There's the death spiral scenario in which the Europeans will do what they're going to do. That seems pretty clear. We denounce it as protectionist, uh, lots of recrimination, lots of lawsuits. We sue them here, we sue them there, we sue them in the WTO, and everything gets worse. Uh, The other scenario, which I personally am, am fond of, is the virtuous circle scenario, which is, Uh, They do what they're going to do. Uh, And our companies that will be disadvantaged by that, and that may not be very many in the short run actually, so this may take a long time to play out, but uh, the companies that will be disadvantaged come to the U.S. government and say, hey, we're getting hosed by the Europeans. We need to do the same thing to them. Uh, And that's not a very uh, noble motive, but nobility doesn't really matter very much. It, It may change the political equation here and may create a business constitu- constituency for having our own border measures. And so if they do it and we do it and then the Chinese do it, then you've got a critical mass. And maybe we're all doing it for the wrong reasons. Maybe we're all doing it for protectionist reasons. But the point is, at the end of the day, we've done something uh, that may have some climate mitigation effect. So you guys all could take your pick. You know, Go for the death spiral. Go for the virtuous circle. I don't know what the answer is.
1: Yeah, look, I, I'm I'm a free trader at heart, and uh, border taxes restrict trade. So let's just start with that: that the things get more expensive, living standards decline. Uh, but ha- having said that, you've you've I think we've got to get to the point where we actually tell the voters what's about to happen to them, um, because most of the U.S. climate policy, as such as it is to date. Are uh, happen at the industrial level or the industry level. Uh, a lot of the renewable uh, fuel standards and uh, happens at the happens in the at the industry level. Uh, uh, fuel economy standards are corporate average; they're industry standards. Uh, a lot of the a lot of the subsidies for renewables are given to electric utilities, not to consumers. There are some for. El- EV purchases and there are some consumer subsidies, uh, but those are all the carrots Bill talked about. And in the meantime, you know, gasoline per gallon is about two and a half times as much in Europe as it is here, and uh, and, and so this, Europeans have faced up to the fact that if you actually want to reduce carbon, you probably ought to put it at a higher price. Um, that's been really tough for U.S. politicians. I would note earlier this year. The one White House red line in the infrastructure bill in terms of pay-fors was an increase in the gasoline tax, which hasn't been increased since the 90s. Um, So these things are pretty sensitive with voters. They they noticed the higher gas prices, and now we've got to talk them into more expensive things. Now, I'm all for transparency. I'm all for doing that. But uh, there was a BTU tax that passed the House in 1994, failed in the Senate, and the House Democrats lost the majority. In 2010 there was a cap and trade bill that passed the house narrowly, failed in the Senate and Democrats lost the house in 2010. they're they're, they're not unaware of these things. so we got to f- find a way to manage the politics uh, and uh, all of it uh, will will have some sticker shock associated with it. but like I said, transparency ultimately will be the universal solvent in this. Make it clear what the what what you want to happen, create the incentives you can get to a lower-carbon future.
0: Yeah, my, my environmentalist friends are gloomy about that. I mean, I, I agree with Scott, but my the environmental colleagues are gloomy because they think that, that basically, I, this is an oversimplification, but basically they would say the Biden approach is mostly carrots. Uh, that's not going to be good enough to deal with the, the amount of climate mitigation that's necessary. Uh, we're going to have to get to sticks. Uh, there's not a political constituency to do that. Uh, so the United States is in the uncomfortable position of not doing enough, knowing that it's not doing enough, and not being able to do more. Uh, and that's uh, I think that's what has everybody that uh, has everybody worried. And there is a, a, a lack of transparency, which you can see, not only in this area, you see it on Buy America too. I've been frustrated there where. You know, the administration basically wants to take the line of we can, you know, we can reshore, we can increase uh, domestic procurement, and it won't cost any more, you know. And that's just wrong. It's going to cost more. I think it would be better to be honest with the American people and say, look, you know, there are some values here, other values here that are important. It's worth paying more because we're going to get these other benefits along the way. I mean, you can agree with that or not, but at least that would be an honest conversation. Uh, and I think sooner or later on climate, somebody's got to bite the bullet and say, look, if you want to meet the crisis, meet the challenge that the crisis uh, demands, uh, it's going to cost more and people are going to have to change their behavior. Uh, Europe is getting to that point now. I just was reading something yesterday about that because they're starting to ratchet up the price of carbon uh, and they're starting to, to therefore, kind of put the screws on people to change their behavior. And we'll see what happens to Public opinion in, in the EU about that—they, uh, the public so far in Europe has been, I think, significantly more accepting of the need to do something about climate than the public in the United States has been. And now, as the, you know, as that begins to tighten up in Europe, we'll see if that changes. Here, uh, I think somebody ought to begin by having a, an honest conversation with the voters about it, and we haven't had that yet.
2: If I could switch topics a little bit here and move us away from the doom and gloom of climate change and out of politics and instead talk about holiday shopping. I know it's only September, everybody, and I know pumpkin spice latte season is just getting underway right now. Um, But I did notice that The Guardian carried a headline last week that said or was really warning Australians specifically to buy early to make sure that their gifts were delivered on time. For a holiday that's four months away. Um, and they've called this um, global supply chain crisis dramatically bad, direct quotes. So what's going on here? Is it really that bad? And should we be buying holiday gifts today?
1: I think the answer to question two is yes, uh, because uh, I, I, I'm, you were talking to somebody who placed orders for furniture four months ago and doesn't have it, so, so yes, get your Christmas gifts ordered now. But more in, in a broader sense, uh, I think here is the, the COVID-related shutdowns had the following macro impact. First, in general, services were suppressed. Now, some of them more than others, but, but obviously things like restaurants, uh, people stopped eating out, uh, the carryout business was much smaller. There were the so-called beach industries, uh, B-E-A-C-H, which is, which is booking, entertainment, uh, airlines, uh, and depending on your pleasure, casin- the C is for casinos or cruises, uh, and the, uh, the H is for hotels. Uh, those, those shares cratered, and the businesses shrank dramatically. Now, that happened on the services side because, of, uh, because workers mostly remained whole in, or at least in part remained whole, sometimes due to federal uh, transfers, sometimes due to continuing work from home, uh, goods purchases actually increased dramatically. So, uh, so worldwide goods, goods uh, demand oddly increased, and we probably all were a part of that. Okay, you bought some stuff in the first three or four months of your COVID shutdown to fix up your home office, Okay, to make your life more convenient. You couldn't spend money on services, so you either saved it and savings is at about a 20 year high for American households who never save anything. uh, But all but goods goods demand went up. Now, what people miss in that is that there was a very important service that's associated with goods. It is transportation and distribution and that's the fragile, in my view, that's the fragile part of the chain right now. There are some seriously deep supply chain problems. Uh, Integrated circuits are one. They're just too much demand for for the existing capacity and it takes too long to build capacity. Uh, There are some shallow supply chain problems that will resolve themselves. Uh, Toilet paper in the early days, uh, ketchup packets, uh, things like that. Uh, those will life take care takes care of itself. You buy a machine, you you get over it. Uh, but uh, what's happening is the, what I'd really watch carefully are the people who move stuff, the people who work at ports, the people who who drive long haul trucks. Uh, those are that service is one that's essential. And frankly, if you get an outbreak among a, truck, a trucking company or something like that, you get people who aren't engaged in the work, and those are frankly skilled jobs, often requiring licensing and and a lot of it, you can't just hire off the street for uh, somebody who runs uh, you know a, a, a crane operator at a at a container port. So it's the that is the place that, I, in my view, is most fragile. Now uh, the caution is. All supply chain problems are f- at the firm level. And and they all both are created and solved at the firm level. But if I look aggregate across the economy, while services as a whole are down, I'd watch those distribution and transportation services as the fragile part. And that's why I'd buy early.
0: Uh, I haven't started my shopping yet. Uh, and But now, Scott, it's, it's got me scared. So I guess I, uh, <laughs> I better do it. I think... Um, in the the beach case, which is a cool acronym, we've been sort of thinking about um, uh, what's going to come back. This is less a shopping issue than than a travel uh, vacation issue. And I think our projection is, I think personal travel, recreational travel is coming back and is going to continue to come back. People are inveterate tourists. The Grand Canyon's not going to go away. Uh, People are still going to want to see it and they're still going to want to take their kids to see it. Uh, I think what may not come back, certainly not to the previous extent and and maybe not very much, is business travel, which is not good news for the airlines because that's where they make a lot of their money. And, uh, you know, I I think what people have discovered is that, you know, Zoom may only be 80% as good as in person, but when you factor in the price of airline tickets, Business class airline tickets. You factor in hotels. You factor in all the the downtime uh, in on the flight at the airport. You factor in ground transportation. You know, eighty percent may be good enough. Uh, There seems to be some expectation that um, to if you know where business travel may come back is if it's necessary to close a deal, uh, and if it's necessary to to uh, network, meet new customers, and and. Woo them, develop if you clients. Yeah. Uh, develop client development, uh, which means go to trade shows. Uh, that's fine, uh, and you'll see some of that come back. <clears throat> what won't come back probably are training sessions, intra-company meetings, uh, things that are not outward-facing. I think a lot of that is uh, is gone, uh, and I think, frankly, uh, you're going to see uh, you're not going to see uh, all of this disappear from academic institutions either. I mean, you guys probably have opinions about that, but my sense is that you know not just universities but schools of all levels have built up you know a significant digital infrastructure uh, uh, for better or for worse, and they're not going to abandon it. I mean they won't be able to in the short run. Uh, but I think people are going to uh, this is going to be with us uh, for a long time, and it's going to change the way that, uh, that we do business in some significant ways.
2: Yeah definitely agree with that. Oh, Kislea, do you want to go back to Europe or you want to go to, to uh, questions from the audience?:
3: we, we, we can go to questions from the audience and, uh, and if there's a lull, I'll, I'll jump in with my question.:
2: All right, sounds good. So we did receive a number of questions from the audience. Um, at the time of registration. So I have a couple of questions that I've pulled out from there that I'm just gonna um, throw out to to our experts, Scott and Bill. And the first question comes from Rowan Boucher. The question is, what is your recommendation on how U.S. companies can compete in international markets where countries subsidize public companies?
1: Uh, Well, look, going international is tough. Anytime you leave your home market is tough. But, but the, first, the first condition has got to be, you've got to have a technical basis to expect success in the market. You've got a product, you've got a service, you've got something that is a winner and you believe you can make it work and there's a, there's a, a rationale for doing it. Now, anytime you enter a foreign market, the, there are likely local competitors and whether or not there are explicit subsidies, uh, you often have pretty cozy relationships uh, between the government and the local suppliers, depending on the country, uh, and uh, in some cases, uh, well, the, the 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 ideal example was uh, uh, the former Soviet Union in 1989. The local companies were complete disasters. Uh, they they produced awful products. Uh, they had they had employees. Who were geniuses at being able to run 50s east german equipment uh, so that the employees were gold but the products they they produced were were lousy compared to uh what any any sort of international product now that those those opportunities come along once in a blue moon the more likely one is you're entering a market where you have local competition that's pretty sophisticated and this here's where an active negotiating agenda helps because uh, if you entered the market, you probably had a way to win without the subsidies because you, you make that assumption that your, comp- your competition is subsidized. But your competition may also have some local protections uh, that you'd like to try to weed out. And uh, occasionally, when you, have an, when you have an active negotiating agenda, uh, uh, you can do that uh, with with enough creativity. Uh, an example, of, just one example, bef- uh, and to uh, make it quick, uh, in, in Central and South America, uh, in, the, in the 70s and 80s, there was sort of a bunch of anti-gringo laws passed that restricted the actions of foreign, foreign enterprises in terms of the distributors they could use. And basically what it meant is, rather than having a distributor of your products and, and operating with them on commercial terms, once you agreed to distribute through a certain individual or firm, you almost couldn't fire them. It was impossible to get rid of them. Uh, there was one place I worked for Procter and Gamble. We had a we had four distributors in in the Dominican Republic. One of them sold Metamucil. Period. It turned out he had he had signed an agreement with G.D. Searle Company in the 1980s, and and the old guy just refused to die. And there was no way out of that agreement <laughs> <laughs> until he until his funeral, <laughs> and so one of the things that the negotiators did is they tried to create a better a better level playing field in the uh, DR-CAFTA agreement and so there's a provision on these dealer laws in DR-CAFTA and that's the kind of negotiating creativity that if you've got an active agenda you can use but look have a have a basis to succeed and a basis to overcome uh, the uh, the locals, and then make sure uh, home governments that are active in the, in the region are are important to to business. Yeah, I just add uh, a lot of due
0: diligence up front is is critical. You know, if, if uh, it, it depends a little bit on what your product is and what you're doing. If uh, if you're a company like like Procter Gamble, you have a choice. You know, you can locate uh, where you think it's probable for you to do that. Um, if, for example, you're in the natural resource business. Uh, It's a little bit different. You have to locate where the resource is, uh, and the resource might not be in a in a might be in a country where there's, you know, a state-owned. In fact, with natural resources, often are in countries where there are um, uh, state-owned enterprises. So if you decide to go, you're you're going up against uh, the state-owned enterprise. Uh, I mean, in a bizarre way. the, The good news might be that at least in the resource sector, they probably won't let you in anyway, which would make the make the decision a little bit easier. But uh, mostly, a lot of due diligence, uh, a lot of figuring out what your what you, what your advantage is, um, and uh, your advantage might be uh, product quality. Uh, your advantage might be uh, better service and maintenance. Uh, your adv- advantage might be uh, uh, better delivery. Your advantage might be um, uh, uh, mobility or uh, uh, the ability to uh, to move quickly. One of the things that Happened has happened in the apparel sector, for example, is uh, uh, importers or well U.S. companies prize uh, foreign companies' ability to uh, basically to to uh, switch directions uh, very quickly. So, uh, you know, you you if you're in the fashion business and you've developed a line of Christmas sweaters that are all green, and you've bought you've ordered thousands of dozens of green sweaters and they arrive and you discover the green is not the fashionable color this year uh, and you want red ones. Uh, well, some com- com- companies will just say, well, you know, it'll take me uh, three weeks to retool and, and, you know, gear up and by then Christmas will be over with and you're toast. And, but if you find the company that says, well, you know, 48 hours, I can do that, that's an advantage. And if you're one of those companies, you um, you know, it's it's knowing what your advantage is and then exploiting that.
2: Sure, but Bill, going back to what you said, uh, it sounds like uh, just being barred entry is the strongest non-tariff trade barrier I have ever heard of. <laughs> and let's hope that this uh, this person asking the question is not experiencing that. Um, our next question is about ocean exports. So the question is from Aline Hall. She asks, with U.S. ocean exports facing difficulties in obtaining transportation to reach international markets, will government intervention occur? What do you think?
1: Well, uh, first, look, we're, we're about to spend a trillion dollars or so on infrastructure. We might consider some of that uh, putting toward container ports because you, know, you could look at, for instance, the World Bank's Logistics Performance Index, or the work that the World Economic Forum does on shipping and, and logistics. And in, for instance, look at the top 50 ports in the world, container, port, container ports, ocean container ports, uh, and look at the throughput of, of the top 50 ports. How many U.S. ports are in the top 50? Zero. All right, so start with that. Start with what 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 investments, would it take to make our container ports get them into the top fifty worldwide? It seemed like America ought to be able to at least. You know, we want to be number one. We're, I'll take top fifty, okay. But uh, so I think there's. I think that's some place where the government is inclined uh, to act, and it would be highly beneficial. Uh, the, uh, the The second second issue is a lot of the disruption that's in in containers themselves right at the moment has to do with kind of the the initial months of panic on uh on covid where a lot of orders were canceled and then immediately demand picked up nobody expected it to uh if you look at any of the charts on consumer demand even on even on income levels it's one of the sharpest downturns and then and then upturns in fact, the shortest bear market in history was in it was in march 2020 uh it lasted a week all right and the 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 bounce back is what caught a lot of producers and transporters uh exposed and there's been a lot of catch up since then but look one of the one of the covid effects is is a change in the patterns of where things are made and where they're sold and where they're moved there was a l- slow trend toward regionalization as you know long haul globalization lost its lost its arbitrage value labor rates went up in the developing world. And more importantly, those developing world producers became consumers. And so that was happening. That all got accelerated uh, in COVID. And so there's a lot to capture that. But I think throughput efficiency at ports is the thing I'd focus on first and well worth spending some money.
0: And I just say right answer, but not a short-term remedy.
2: Our next question comes from David Lemus. And he asks, we're seeing potentially inflationary pressures in developed and emerging market economies. Will there be any impacts on U.S. Um, international trade accounts?
1: Yes. Mo- most importantly, uh, that the import prices will go up. Oddly, you know, during during Donald Trump's uh, uh, days as tariff man, the first year of the Trump administration, the average import price actually declined into the United States overall uh so uh import prices will go up, and look the classic definition of inflation is too much money chasing too few goods so the sh- sh- inflation always is accompanied by shortages, and that will that will sort of reinforce it and increase the difficulty so uh so yeah it's it's a problem uh i uh, we've got to find a way to have fewer dollars chasing. The goods we have uh, and uh, the, the easy monetary policy of a long period of time is is affecting us and we'll, i guess qe started in what 2009 and uh, so it's still going on and we have zero interest rates since 2009 uh, we'll see when the punch bowl gets taken away but this is a this is a problem that could compound so i'm a little worried
2: um, I, I will say, I, I was wondering if we'd get through this podcast um, without talking about Tariff Man. I was wrong. So, <laughs>
1: Well, I don't know what the over-under was on Tariff Man. But
2: <laughs> our next question comes from Jeff Mund, um, who's a faculty member here at the Smith School, and he runs our Supply Chain Management Center. Um, so you can guess his question is about supply chain. He asks, how will... 2022 CFO. So next year, think about the trade-off between just-in-time and supply chain resilience.
1: Well, he's correct to identify that all supply chain problems and solution happens at the firm level. Uh, and, but because of that, nothing's for free. You can buy resilience, uh, but you ought to have pri- better have pricing power to do it. In other words, when it comes to developing. A more resilient supply base for a firm—that means qualifying new suppliers. That is a, often a multi-year task. And you keep in mind your current incumbent supplier is probably best price, quality, uh, and and uh, is a proven uh, performer. So you've got it. You've got an investment already made in your existing network. Uh, and, but I think there will be moves to. Search out uh, uh, different ways to 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 increase resilience to protect against uh, downside, and I do think that one of them is going to be uh, the decline in long haul globalization. I think you're going to have a lot more suppliers nearby, um, and now that's that's good for it's good for Mexico, it's good for Turkey, it's good for places that are reasonable alternatives to uh, to the kind of uh, supply bases. Uh, that, that at least represent today's long haul. Uh, but it's, it's tough to do, and it's almost impossible to do at any aggregate level.
0: I wouldn't say it means the end of just in time. Just in time make, means, makes too much sense in a lot of cases. But I think what we learned from, from COVID is that uh, sometimes it makes sense to stockpile so i think you'll see some uh uh returns in inventory uh and inventory management in in selected sectors i mean scott's right this is fundamentally these are fundamentally firm level decisions uh, and the government is going to intrude in one respect um, and if you you saw this in the the supply chain studies they put out in in june in four critical sectors with what, batteries, chips, critical minerals, and and uh, pharmaceuticals, and uh, other medical products. Um, I don't know there was a lot of controversy about that those are critical sectors, but at some point, you know, the administration really has to decide uh, what is a national security issue and what is not. Uh, my favorite story is when we were doing, uh, when I was on the investment side, not on the inventory side, but... When uh, uh, when Chuang Wei was going to buy Smithfield, the ham uh, and pork uh, company, uh, a number of years ago, we had a number of, of um, senators, in particular from agriculture states, arguing against permitting that transaction on national security grounds, which meant essentially they were saying that bacon was a national security item. Uh, they didn't prevail in that argument and, and probably shouldn't have, but it does uh, – suggests that you know national security is a very elastic concept, and uh, the government has demonstrated through its studies in in June that uh, in some selected sectors it may be prepared to intervene um, and encourage uh, uh, the development of, of uh, supply chains that are uh, that emphasize resilience and redundancy uh, over uh, uh, either uh, you know long ch- long chains or over uh, just in time. Uh, delivery schedules. I don't think anybody would complain too much if we're talking about pharmaceuticals. But as the definition gets larger and larger, I mean, if you listen to Peter Navarro in the Trump administration, everything was a national security issue. Uh, and I think the the current current guys will have a more constrained definition, but they haven't articulated that yet. They've got six more studies coming out in February. Uh, On bigger sectors, agriculture, transportation, defense industrial base, energy, collectively those studies are going to cover 60% of our GDP. Uh, If they recommend a lot of supply chain uh, resiliency measures for those, that's going to have very significant impact on the way uh, companies uh, structure their production process.
2: I have to say, um, I've never thought of bacon as being a national security issue. So you heard it here first at the Center for Global Business. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <he does> indeed. <laughs> All right, gentlemen, this will be, in the interest of time, our final question. And it has come in from um, Kelly Tang. What is the best way for someone to prepare for a career in global trade?
1: Well, look, Bill can talk about why global trade is a is a great place for continuity of employment and the demand for for good trade people. Let me just put in a picture. I think it's a great place for happy warriors. Uh, the happy warriors find a home in trade because at its heart, trade is a voluntary exchange between two parties for mutual benefit. It improves lives on both sides of the equation. And it's not just does it lift living standards, a lot of creativity and innovation comes through trade. Uh, we have a phrase called the meeting of the minds. That is when cultures and people interact at the frontier and both come away better and come away with new ways of solving problems. So it's a great human endeavor, and there are enough frustrations and difficulties and and, uh, and uh, entrenched interests to, to do battle with. But there's a lot to be happy about as a trade-happy warrior. Uh, I'm not in
0: the best person to... Talk about that. My arrival in this area was accidental. I was actually uh, hired to do other things in my uh, one of my jobs on the Hill. And then, as time went on, both my boss and I discovered that his uh, contribution in international affairs was going to be in economics uh, because those were the committees they were on uh, that he was on, and it also. Uh, was his personal interest, and also was a good reflection of, of his state's uh, interests and issues. So I sort of became a, a, a trade guy, if you will, uh, unplanned. Uh, so it wasn't like I was mesmerized by this from the, from the beginning, but to me the things that are attractive about it is one, which is true of economics in general, you really learn about how things work, uh, and uh, it's fascinating how they work. And it's fascinating, uh, all these things that happen that you don't understand, trade teaches you how to understand. I mean, Scott didn't get into it, and I, I won't because we don't have time, but, you know, if you want, you get him to talk to you, we'll do this again and get Scott to explain the toilet paper crisis uh, and why we had a shortage. It's a very interesting story, uh, and it turns out there's two different supply chains, one for industrial and one for uh, supermarket use, and it's, you know... You learn all that stuff in trade, and that makes it fascinating. The other thing from an employment perspective that makes it attractive, and this is an appropriate note to end on, is no problems are ever solved. Uh, They're managed, maybe, but they always go on. uh, And you always live to fight another day. So this is permanent employment.
2: That's fantastic. Um, As an educator, I'm going to answer this question myself, too. So, Kelly Study abroad, study a foreign language, or two or three, and make sure that you are taking classes in logistics and export management, because to be in global trade, you you need to know how things get from one place to another. And with that, that's all the time that we have today. Um, Dr. Prasad, I'm going to turn it back over to you.
3: Well, uh, what I have to say is uh, thank you, so Scott, uh, Bill. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure uh, listening to you today uh, and hope you'll come back to the Smith School again.
1: Well, thanks for having us. Yes, thank you. Pleasure to be with you.
2: Fantastic. And I'd also like to reiterate my thanks um, to to Bill, to Scott, um, for being here with us again. Um, I'd also like to thank our audience um, for being with us, joining us via Zoom. If you're interested in learning more about global affairs, please do join us again at the Center for Global Business at 6 p.m. on October 12th for another installment of the Distinguished Speaker Series when we will tackle disparities in the Global South. And for those of you who are participating in the I. Smith program, you'll see the QR code on the screen in front of you now. So go ahead and, and take a photo of that to get your participation points. And for everyone, um, please do take a moment to provide us with feedback on this event and give us ideas of what else you'd like to hear at future events. Um, You'll see the link to the evaluation both in the chat. Um, So Marina's going to share that with us now. And you'll see it in a pop-up window um, when you close out of Zoom. And with that, it's a wrap here at the Center for Global Business at Maryland Smith.
1: To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a
0: CSIS podcast.